Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 39 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. Sorry I did not push out a fresh episode last week, but I was in Los Angeles for my annual jaunt onto the famed Super Bowl Radio Row. As most of you know, I do host a daily syndicated sports talk show slash simulcast TV show for CBS Sports Radio and CBS Sports Network. And once a year, the show travels to the Super Bowl host city for a week of programs. And while I've hit the road for nearly 30 years now, last week was one of my favorite years ever because we did miss the previous year due to COVID. And frankly, until recently, I had not done a single studio interview on my program in roughly two years because of COVID and because I was really careful to maintain my health. After all, availability is always your best ability, and I didn't want to miss work or put anybody else at risk. So it felt great to take the show on the road and interact publicly with literally dozens of guests. That's why we did not drop an episode here last week. However, I can make up for it now. I've got a tremendous conversation for you right now. If you're going to truly reinvent yourself, obviously, you're going to have to start with your mindset. I mean, we hit that every single week, right? It's a given. Literally, everything starts right between your ears. But that in and of itself is not enough. Yes, we are learning to get control of our minds. But what about our actions and our behaviors? You will not change where you are in life unless you can change your behavior. You may even want to, but not know how to. Which brings me to today's guest, Eric Zimmer. Eric knows exactly how to change behavior. He had to learn because his previous behaviors nearly cost him his life. When he was in his early 20s, Eric was homeless, addicted to heroin, and in his words, this close to death. Ultimately, he was arrested. He knew that if he didn't change his behavior and completely transform himself and his way of thinking, he was looking at a long jail stint or even worse, he was going to die. Again, his words. Eric ultimately got clean and sober, and he has spent the better part of the last two decades teaching and advising countless others as a behavior coach. He's also an author, an entrepreneur, and he has a sensational podcast called The One You Feed. Eric makes a great point when he says, knowing what you want to do, but not knowing how to get it done is one of the most painful feelings in the world. If that sounds like you, this is definitely a conversation you're going to want to hear. It's episode 39 of The Reinvention Project with behavior coach Eric Zimmer, and it's coming at you right now. Eric, it is really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for making time for a conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. How are you and yours? Uh, we are all well right now. All is, uh, all is well in, in a uh, really nice way. Good. Good to hear that. So listen, your story really is something. If we can go back, like you've spent the last couple of decades helping countless folks as a behavior coach. You've got a thriving business. You have a tremendous podcast. You're an author, so life is great. However, that was not always the case. As you point out, at age 24, you were supposed to die. Can you take me back? What happened? What was going on in your life at that point? Well, I was uh, a homeless heroin addict at that point. I was... um As you mentioned, I was 24 years old and I kind of hit the bottom. I weighed 100 pounds. I had hepatitis C and I was staring at uh, going to jail for uh, quite a long time. So that was kind of the 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 bottom of the whole thing. You know what what was going on before that was just years of descending further into alcoholism and addiction. Hmm. So obviously, Eric, we jump right into it. So I was going to ask you what had transpired in your life that led you up to that point. So then you have this and this happens, right? So exactly how did you escape that fate? What was that moment of clarity? What happened exactly? How is it that you and I are having this conversation right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. There are moments of clarity. If we were going to do a movie version of my life, right, I could pull out some moments and I'll, I'll, I'll share those with you. Sure. 
And at the same time, it was thousands of little moments of making the right choice over and over and over and over and over again that ultimately leads to being on the other side of that and, and having a different life. I mean, one of the moments was, um, you know, I got arrested. I got arrested at the place I worked and uh, I was living in a van, a delivery van for the restaurant that was taken from me. Uh, my job was taken from me. That's where I was making the money for like a $300 a day heroin habit. And uh, so I went into, I went to detox because that's what, you know, a heroin addict did in those days to not be sick. And while I was there, they said, we think you need to go to 30 day treatment. And I was like, no, I don't think I can do that. I'm not sure quite what was on my social calendar that felt <laughs> felt so important, right. but I went back to my room and I remember I had, you know, in recovery, we actually do call it a moment of clarity. I had a moment of clarity where I went, I'm going to die or go to jail if I go back out there. Like if I leave tomorrow, those are one of those two things is going to happen. And so I went back to him and I said, all right, I'll go to the 30 day treatment program. So that was really kind of a big pivotal moment for me that kind of launched me into recovery. But then, as I say, after that, there's countless moment after moment after moment after moment of making the right choice that leads to recovery and leads to sort of digging yourself out of a hole like that. All right. So, I mean, obviously you get leverage on yourself when you start thinking to yourself, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to jail, both perhaps. I would imagine that would be a moment of clarity. However, that was the one time that rehab really did take, but you would try to perform in the past. Did you not have other moments of clarity prior to that? Or were they not as extreme or as, or as clear in that moment? Like why did it work that time, but not in the previous times? That's a really great question that I, if I could answer clearly and I had an answer that worked, I probably would be a multimillionaire because I could solve one of history's great problems mm. of addiction, right? I don't know entirely. I know that I think what happened with me, and I see this happen with a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, is we show up and we recognize there's a problem. And so we, we start to do something about it. And, um, but we don't do enough. And then we, you know, we use again. So I came back and I was like, all right, well, that wasn't enough. I need to do a little bit more, right? Until eventually we hit the level of whatever it takes for us particularly. So um, I think that's part of it. We talk a lot about a bottom. I think a bottom, you know, consequence is important, but it's not the whole story because there's people we know whose bottoms are incomprehensible to, to most of us. We'd be like, well, I would never go there, but they do. So I think there's a combination of consequence and, and moment of clarity. But I also think the thing that's got to be there at the same time is moments of hope moments of actual belief, like, oh, I think actually, you know, I, this, I can do this, this can be done, you know, and, and that generally comes through support of other people, seeing other people who've gone through it, who've said, hey, this is the way, come on, follow me. Hey, listen, today, small business owners are busier than they have ever been before. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. This is why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates that are worth interviewing faster, and it is free. I use LinkedIn Jobs. I'm on that site almost every single day. You should try it yourself. In fact, create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need most. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you would like to interview and hire. An absolutely tremendous product. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. And did you know that every single week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Rome. That's linkedin.com slash R-O-M-E to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. All right, so there are a number of things in that response that are part and parcel of your strategies and part of the things that you teach that I want to get into. Before we get into the process that you use to rebuild yourself and your life overall, how long has it been since you put a needle in your arm? Mm. Since I put a needle in my arm, it has been 
oh boy, 27 years probably. Now, I stayed sober eight years after the last time I put a needle in my arm. And, but then I went back out after eight years and I drank again. And, um, you know, I was, I was smoking marijuana and, and, and I got sober again, and that's been 15 years. So I've been completely sober again for 15 years, but it's been uh, a a longer time since I, I, I did heroin. When I went back out, I did not go back to that. So can I ask you this? I would imagine, and again, I, I can't wait to get into this process of how you did this and how you overcame, but I would imagine there are a lot of people listening right now, and I know this from even the other shows and podcasts that I do, that that are addicts and they do use. I'm curious, is it once an addict, are you always an addict? Are you clear, or is this truly one day at a time for you personally? I think for me, I am pretty clear on it would be a really good choice to never use uh, drugs or alcohol again for me. It just hasn't worked out. Every time I've tried it, it is it has ended poorly. So, um, you know, the, the question about whether, you know, is somebody recovered or not, I don't know. I Most of the tendencies that I had as an addict, I, I'm, I'm not really that person in the same way anymore. So I don't feel like I'm close to a drink. I don't feel like I'm close to a drug. But I also know that I don't think it would be wise for me to... Uh, try it again because my my attempts at trying it again always ended poorly i see all right so eric your podcast is called the one you feed and it's based on a famous parable for those who do not know what does that mean the one you feed yeah well there's a there is a a a famous parable out there where there's a um grandfather grandmother whichever you want to use grandfather talking with their grandson and they say in life there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle one's a good wolf represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the, the grandchild stops and thinks about it for a second, looks up and the grandparent says, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. So that's the parable, right? It's, it's, um, and so I use that parable in every interview I do as sort of a jumping off point for people. You know, I ask them kind of, what does that mean to you? Exactly. Which one do you feed? So let me ask you this. When it comes to that, like the strategies, and again, you have an entire program or programs that you teach and you help people with, but generally speaking, these strategies and these tactics, are they based on discipline and willpower? There's an element of discipline and willpower in, I think, anything positive that we're going to do, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think it can be enough because the problem is particularly willpower is a um or motivation right is a is a thing that goes up and down it does more so in some people than others right like you've got some people who are just they're they're chronically always motivated it's just there and it just happens right but most people will have some of it kind of going up and down so what we've got to do is find strategies that we can use for those times when we're not as motivated, you know, when we when we're not feeling as as uh, committed, you know, what are the strategies we can use? So I, I do think there's an element of it that it is critical, but I think there's more to it than simply being disciplined or willpowered. Right. If we just right. said to people, be disciplined, like everybody would do it. It's it's like telling an addict, don't drink. Well, there's some skills that go into that, right? And not everybody knows what they are or how to do them. So I think the same thing with this. You could say to somebody, be disciplined, but not everybody really knows how to do that. I was going to say to you, exactly, and not to interrupt, but I mean, there would be somebody, I agree with you. I, I think I, I'm a strong proponent of it, and I would like to be even more disciplined than I am, but I have to imagine that some of the people you work with would say, hey, Eric, by the way, I'm just not that disciplined, or I just don't have that great willpower, or frankly, I start, but I never really finish, and I don't follow through. Again, I would imagine you have an entire program for this, but what do you do if somebody says, I'm just not great at changing my behavior? I really want to, but you know what, by the way, I don't know how. What do I do? Yeah, well, I think we start with that. Why do you want to? Why does it matter to you? Right? We've got to get clear on on um, why it matters. So we start there. Let's get clear on what our why is. Um, from there, I think the next step is to say, all right, well, what 
what sort of gets in my way? Let me, let me look back at my attempts. Let's just, let's just keep it simple. Say somebody's like, all right, I want to exercise every day. I know I need to do it. I know it's good for my health and I just am not doing it. So we start with like, okay, well, why is that important to you? And we, we, we try and ask why multiple times to get to the emotional heart of it because we are emotional creatures right and so what what really matters you know oh i want to do it you know ultimately i get down to it because i'm like oh i want to be around to hold my grandkids okay that's a that's a reason that matters more than my doctor says i should get in shape right so we, we want to get to that deeper why and then review what's standing in our way what, what are the things that we've tried before that haven't worked? Why? What, what I started out in the mornings, I do it for a week or two, and then I quit. Why? What, what was going on in your mind? Um, and then we start developing what's your current level that you're at, and what can we do that's going to ensure success? A lot of people come out of the gates way too hot, right? It's like, I've not exercised in two years, but I'm going to start working out for an hour and a half a day. Well, working out an hour and a half a day, if you're out of shape, is really hard, really difficult, which means if you have sky high motivation, you'll do it. But we know that motivation goes up and down. So for a few days a week, you've got really high motivation. You go to the gym for an hour and a half every day. But then that motivation drops a little bit and you're like, and you don't do it. Then what starts happening is, a, is sort of a self-fulfilling pattern where you go, see, I never stick with anything. I'm never going to change. You know, I knew this was going to happen. And, and we spiral off and, and it's you know, six months again before we try again. So what I work with people on is let's, let's find out where you're at and let's find something you can be successful at day after day after day. And then we can build. So if we can be successful and build consistency, then we can build, um, say, duration and intensity, right? This is the way a lot of athletes are trained, right? The, the, the coach is first working on consistency. We got to get consistent with our workouts. Now, once we're consistent, we can build up the duration of that workout. And then when we're exercising as often and as for long as we can, now let's dial up the intensity, right? So there's a similar process here, which says, let's... Um, Let's find where you can succeed. Let's get consistency and then let's build from there. Because when you're successful, you're more motivated. When we do well, we, we want to do more. And when we fail, we get discouraged and we want to give up. So that's, that's it in a very quick nutshell. I'm telling you, I absolutely love that sound. Can I hear that again? Love it. That is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is tremendous. What it does is it gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. This way, upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Listen, Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibilities. Trust me, this podcast started out selling office chairs. Today, we're selling business solutions, technology, and more. And we are not stopping there because success is, in fact, a million milestones on a forever evolving path. Am I right? Shopify powers over millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Again, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. This is possibility, and it's powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com slash all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify right now. Go to shopify.com slash R-O-M-E. That's shopify.com slash R-O-M-E. No, I, by the way, I appreciate that. I like that a lot. And I, I think what I'm hearing also is let's build a foundation. Let's build a foundation. Let's be realistic. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm hearing everything you just said, and I'm going to follow up, and it's going to be a little bit redundant, but it's interesting, right? Like, what comes first then? Motivation, which, as we point out, as you point out, comes and goes. What comes first, Eric? Motivation or action? Like, does motivation lead to action, or does action lead to motivation? I actually think it's bi-directional. Right. I, I actually thought. think it, it's bi-directional, right? We, we all know the, I feel motivated, so I go do this thing, right? But the flip side of it very often is, 
like I may not be motivated to get on the exercise bike, but I just sort of am able to sort of push myself there. Uh, I heard a Peloton commercial on your show recently. I've got one. I love the thing. Right. So I get myself on it. All of a sudden I start pedaling and I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of want to do this. Right. Like, so, so that's a case where, um, motivation follows action. The other thing that happens is when I do that and I feel good about it and I feel like, all right, I feel good about myself. I'm more motivated, right? We know that motivation tends to tick upwards when we feel confident, when we feel good about ourselves, and we know it ticks downwards when we feel um, doubtful, bad about ourselves, all that. So, so that, that's the case where motivation can follow action. I think, I think that Peloton analogy you just made is brilliant. I, I, exactly. That, that's my life. That's where I live. And I, I normally try not to, although this is a personal journey that I'm on, and then you've, you've gone on your journey, and you've helped so many people along the way. I hate to personalize this, but I, I really have an issue that I kind of want to ask you about if you don't mind. Like, So sure. I'll hit that Peloton five times a week or more. I'll hit it for 60 minutes at a clip. So I take that pretty seriously, and I feel like a million bucks got this weird thing eric and it's not a weird thing it's a really it's a really problematic thing it's a sugar thing i don't do it every single night but i do it way more than i want there is a pantry it's not far from the kitchen i will find my way into that pantry i already know how it's going to make me feel i don't know if that sugar maybe you can explain this to me better is the sugar like a drug is it a mental thing is it a physical thing all i know is when it hits the bloodstream it feels great but not long thereafter i feel like shit pardon my language mentally physically emotionally i go to my office to do my work at night i'm not effective and i know this going in yet i do it and i repeat that behavior why do i do that when i don't want to do that yeah that's a great question um there, there's a few different things when we when we look at changing a behavior like that. I mean, problem one is you've just got sugar in a pantry that's two feet away. Now that may just be the way it has to be because you've got family and and you got to have those things around. But our environment actually can be helpful. So a general principle is if you don't want to do something, make it as hard to do it as possible. Put as many steps and barriers between you as you can. Because at each of those steps or barriers, you have another moment to reflect, right? It's why, like, I, I, I mean, generally, I would not keep alcohol in the house, right? It's just, if I've got to go get in a car to go get it, I've got a little bit more time to contemplate it, right? And the converse is, if you want to do something, make it as easy as possible to do it. So that's one behavior change principle. So the fact that it's in a pantry right near you is, 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 is problem one, right? Problem two is, it's hard to know when something is simply habitual, as in like, one, when we do, when we do something, repeatedly, we're more likely to do it again. It's just, I, I call it habit energy, right? It's just habitual. And so we got to shake up that habit. Sometimes just slightly different routines can, can do it. Beyond that, then you get into two other areas. One that you touched on is perhaps there is a um, physiological addiction happening on some level. I actually do think that like when I eat sugar, I want more sugar like the next day. Whereas if I don't eat it for a while, it sort of just fades away from me. But when I'm eating it, I, I want it more. So I do think there's something physiological happening. And then the, the next piece is, you know, I often say with, with people with behavior change, there's two key things we've got to figure out. One is tactical. The, these are things like having a good plan or structuring your environment so it's harder to do or think of an alternate activity I could do instead of having the sugar. I could, have a, I could drink a glass of water. So there's a very tactical element to behavior change, and, and that's really important, and we got to work on that. And then there's an emotional element. And the emotional element is... I call it emotional regulation. And, and I define that as the ability to work with our thoughts and emotions skillfully enough to act according to our values. So sometimes we got to go a level deeper and go, okay, Jim, what's going on in your mind, in your emotions at that moment that you're walking into the pantry? I'm not saying it's even a big thing, but there might be something that's happening. You might just be feeling tired right? You might be feeling a little discouraged by something you might. So this is where, you know, you've, you've got to kind of zoom in on that moment and go, all right, what's actually happening in that moment for me that I'm thinking, feeling, et cetera. I've got to become more conscious of what's happening. My man, Eric, I love that response. Everything about that is true. Everything.
everything. That is so that that is so right on on every level. I've experienced every one of those things without being conscious of them. But when you lay it out like that, and I open my mind up to it, and I hear it. That's exactly the type of thing that's going in when I go to murder those Girl Scout cookies. You don't think so, but you're right. All those things are going on. That is so true. Yep. Yeah, and which of those will will be the one that unlocks for you? I, I don't know, but you can kind of just systematically work your way work your way I, through them. Let, let me ask you this: You're right, I, and I would, and I would go back and I would listen to that again, and I would give considerable thoughts. To that let me just ask you one thing really quickly: that, the point that you made initially about you know, like if you, if for you, if there's not alcohol in the house, you're not going to go looking for it. I have this conversation with my wife almost every single day. Like if those, if that sugar is not in the house, I will not physically get in my car and go pursue and find sugar. But if the sugar is two steps away, I will find it. But then today I finally, I don't want to say it was an epiphany, but I thought I kind of go the other way, Eric, you know, like sometimes I go into that Jocko Willink mode where it's like, listen, extreme ownership. My wife did not pry open my mouth and jam those cookies down my throat. I consciously made that decision. I need to own that. I need to own that. How much of that is about if you take that out of the pantry, you're much less likely to find it versus, hey, listen, there's got to be some personal accountability here too and some ownership of your choice and your decision. I think it's both, right? Right. When I got sober the second time, I mentioned I got sober at 24 from heroin. I was was sober eight years, went out and drank. When I got sober again the second time, my wife was a daily drinker. And I had a job in sales where I took people, my job was to take people out and wine and dine them. I was around alcohol constantly. Hmm. Now, I would not recommend this as a way of getting sober. It's not, it's very difficult. But to your point, you know, I was the one who had to choose, am I drinking or not? Ultimately, at the end of the day, do I pick up the drink, put it in my mouth? So again, if we can stack the environmental deck in our favor, great right because it just it's it, it it requires less of us and that's good right like why make it harder than you have to right but on the other hand if if the cookies are going to be there because your your wife is like look i like them the kids like them we're not getting rid of them and you're like all right well then that's that's the that's the hand i got to deal with now yes you do have to take ownership right so that's why i sort of laid out you know there's multiple things here setting up the environment to help us succeed is just a tool. If that tool is not available to us, then we have to use the other tools more. You bet. No, in defense, my wife, Janet, she, uh, she buys Girl Scout cookies to support the Girl Scout. She's not like, I want those. I need those. Our kids need those. She just really wants to support the Girl Scouts. And I'm like, just give them the 20 bucks, man. Just don't tell them to keep That's the right. cookies and just, just support them that way. So Eric, let me ask you this. You did a TED Talk once where, and if you could break this down, you can spend as much time or as little time on this as you want, but I thought it was great. You talked about playing the board game Risk and that the strategies that you apply to that game can also be applied to changing behavior. Can you give me a taste of that can you kind of run that down or share as much of that as you want but i thought that was really interesting yeah so i mean ultimately the ted conference was about risk so i had to figure out how can i how can i get behavior changed uh, shoehorned into the word risk well and so done. that's how well I done did by it, the way right? i didn't i did not yeah, know that that you. was the point of that conference so well done yeah, then yeah, yeah so i it was it was it was kind of what i had to do but you know yeah i'll give you a couple examples like one of them was um you know, um, take small continents first, right? So if you're playing risk, one strategy is like, you know, don't, don't go after all of Europe, right? It's, it's, or don't go after, you know, Africa, like take a smaller continent, grab Australia or grab Canada or, you know, so take small continents. This speaks to what I said earlier about like, let's, let's set our initial goals at a place that's achievable for us. Let's not say, all right, I haven't been working out at all. I'm back to the gym 90 minutes a day. Let's start with something more modest, right? So let's take small continents first. Um, and then there was another um, one. I don't remember exactly what I called it, but it was, you know, in risk, you don't want to spread your armies too thin, right? You don't want to have like two guys in every territory you control or you just get wiped out. So, and this is sort of like not doing too many different things. Like New Year's will roll around and somebody will be like, all right, I am going to exercise every day. I'm changing my diet. I'm going to start journaling. Um, I'm going to start meditating every day. And, and you're just like, you're not, there's no way you're going to do all that, right? Like it's too much. So in the same way, 
like don't spread your armies too thin. So those were a couple behavior change principles that, that I tied to risk. You also used a really good real life example as, as an example, you worked with a successful author who once sat down and she went to start her next novel, but there was nothing there, right? Like how bad was it? And then how did you go about addressing that problem with her? Because I think this is something that we can all apply to other types of quote writer's block or whatever block we might have. Yeah, I think, you know, with her, um, it was a matter of like, let's just get back to writing. Let's start small. You know, she's she's expecting to be writing at a really high level because she used to. And we have to start we have to start where we are. So, you know, with her, it was really about like, let's just get back to writing every day. You know, let's get that consistency underneath us. Let's lay in. um you know, uh, 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 an amount you can do every day, because as you start doing it, you're going to start to feel better about yourself. Right now you feel bad about yourself and you doubt yourself. And that's one of the biggest things I think that prevents people changing is we, we just don't, we don't, we don't believe in ourselves anymore. Or we say something like, I always start things, but I never finish. I'm the kind of person who right now I'm identified as a person who doesn't finish things. Well, guess what's going to happen? I'm probably not going to finish things. This is not all about like, oh, just have positive thinking and it'll work. But it is about negative thinking will hold you back. And so in her case, we just have to get her back to writing and get her back to feeling good about that. And then again, it's easier. It's much easier for us to sort of build. Um, so that's, that's, you know, what, what we did with her. But when you say like you had to get her back to writing, was it like you write a chapter a day, you write a page a day, you write five minutes a day? What was it? Yeah, yeah. It was actually, it was time. Because the problem with a lot of people don't know, they're trying to do something like they say, I'm going to write 750 words a day. That's a popular website out there, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But but for some people, 750 words might come in 10 minutes for someone else it could take them forever to write 750 words right so when you're dealing with something that you don't know how much time or effort it's going to take it's i think it's easier to measure um simple time you know i'm gonna i'm gonna work at this for 10 minutes and when you do that you just go okay i did my 10 minutes i'm gonna feel good about it regardless of what happened in that time now that takes a little bit of effort right to, to go okay I'm going to feel good about writing 10 minutes when I used to write for, for six hours, but we've got to start where we are. I mean, that's the, that's the simple thing is people are always trying to start from somewhere. They're not, you can't do that. you got to start from where you are. Hmm. So I would say in, in that case, it would be minutes that I would be focusing on. I, I think that's really interesting. What you just said, that's why I'm sorry. And I'm trying not to jump in on you, but I just kind of, I give you those nonverbals when I hear something that's really interesting to me, like, Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. You want to start where you are. Now, you talk about this concept, Eric, a lot on your podcast, and it's kind of a big concept, but this concept of what it means to live a good life. In your opinion, what is the secret to living a good life, or where do we start if we want to live a good life? Well, you know, I've done 400 and some episodes about it, so I clearly haven't answered the question definitively. Right? I got you. <laughs> um, I, here's what I think a good life is. I think a good life is... Um, knowing what what that means to you like defining what it means for you and balancing what i think is a very human um as humans we have a desire to grow and change and um become something different it's a ambition right so there's an element of that that is in us. I think it's I think it's actually built into us species-wise. But there's also an argument that says, "Hey, why not appreciate what we have and where we are?" And so, how do you balance? You know, balancing those two things is really interesting. We all know people who've got the ambition piece down, like they just go, 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 but they don't enjoy any part of their life. And then we know people who don't, you know, don't really don't know how to actualize anything into their life. And they're, they're not really living in a way that, that honors that part of them that has to grow and change. And so I think a good life for me is a lot about balancing those two things. Like, yeah, there's things I want to do. There's things I want to accomplish. Uh, there's a person I want to be. I want this change. And simultaneously, I am able to appreciate and be grateful for where I'm at in life. You know, how do I, how do I, how do, I do those two things feels to me like, a key ingredient in a good life. You know, it's interesting. Like, for instance, if 
if you want to make changes in behavior, and again, you are a behavior coach, and we're talking about how to change behavior, does failing to make changes in behavior mean that you are an actual failure, or does it mean something else? I, I don't think it... I mean, again, I think people should define success for themselves. So I don't know if I would say you are a failure. Um, and I don't know that I would ascribe a be. I don't know that I would take a behavior and attach it to my identity. And I think that's part of where, what gets people in trouble is they go, I've tried to change this behavior a bunch of times. I haven't been successful. I am a failure. And that I think really limits us. There's an idea in psychology of a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. You, you've probably heard of this, right? A, a growth mindset says, you know what? I'm capable of changing and getting better. It's just simply that I'm capable of changing and getting better. A fixed mindset says, I'm kind of, I am what I am. I'm where I am. I'm who I am. I'm fixed. It's not going to change. And, and we know from a whole lot of different studies that growth mindset, kids who are given, you know, who are taught about a growth mindset do much better than kids that have a fixed mindset. I think the same thing for us as adults is like, okay, I may have not been successful up till now, but how do I do differently? So when I'm working with somebody, I really work to say, we need to set down all this sort of shame and all the feeling awful about yourself. And we need to try and set that aside because the problem is it doesn't work. And B, when you're busy in that, I suck, I ju you're judging yourself and I'm such a failure and you're not learning. And behavior change ultimately, I think is about learning. Like, so I approach somebody who's not who's quote unquote failing at what they're trying to do. I approach it like a puzzle. Okay. Th this is solvable. This is fixable. You are not broken. You, we just haven't figured out for you how to unlock this. And so let's, let's get to work on that. And so I think that's kind of important is to shift people out of fixed mindset. I'm a failure into a growth mindset that might say, well, up till now I haven't been successful, but I can change and get better. Yeah. It seems to me like when I started doing this and I've thought about these things for a long, long time before I actually took to doing the podcast and it comes up Eric, every single week, right? Mindset, mindset, mindset. It seems to me it's as important as anything else. You know, also taking action obviously is very important, but is it just a matter of taking action or do you need to take the right action? Well, I mean, I think it depends what, what we're talking about. I mean, a, a quote that I say on the show a lot is sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking, right? Mm. Can, so, can you, can so, you say that one more time? I, yeah, I love that. Go ahead. If, if you could yeah, just repeat that one more time. Yeah, sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. So take me early in early in recovery as a heroin addict. My brain is telling me about every 10 minutes, go get high, right? It's just, that's what it's telling me to do. So I, I can't like just think my way out of that. But what I learned was if I went to meetings every day and I called my sponsor and I helped other people and I cleaned, uh, I cleaned coffee cups after the meeting and I did the things they suggested for me to do, then oftentimes my mind would follow along. This gets back to motivation following action, right? So, so I do think, yes, right action is, obviously we want to do the right action, but there are times I think that action period is better than non-action. Like I've, I've dealt with depression on and off in my life. And one of my favorite phrases is depression hates a moving target. So in, when, when I feel that coming on, it doesn't much matter what I do. I just need to do something besides sit on the couch, right? Get outside, take a walk, call a friend, listen to music, just move in some way. So I think sometimes, um, you know, right action is preferable, but, you know, sometimes any action is better than none. You know, Eric, you mentioned depression. I, I say this, I'm coming from a very naive place and I do not have any kind of background in this, but mental health is becoming more and more of an issue, of course, and it's less taboo, especially in sports where I do my other day job. I'm curious, when you say that you suffered from depression, it is it clinical? Is it cultural? Like what kinds of depression? And then how did you go about treating that? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's clinical, although, you know, I mean, our our, our ability to diagnose mental health is um, 
it's still a nebulous thing, right? It's not like I can go into the doctor and they can do a scan of my brain and go, okay, there's the problem. Or they can do a blood test and go, okay, this is what it is, right? It's self, it's me self-reporting symptoms out and uh, somebody, uh, a doctor, a clinician doing their best to say, all right, based on that, I think this is what it is. Um, so in my case though, it, it, my depression has always felt extraordinarily, um, physical. And what I mean by that is it's not that I feel sad. It's not that I feel like bad. I mostly just feel sort of, for lack of a better word, sort of just, there's nothing. It's just this sort of deadness inside, right? A term that's often used is anhedonia, which means the, the inability to take pleasure in things that normally bring you pleasure, right? So I'm normally the kind of person that's like, you know, walk me into a room. And if there's a bookshelf and a CD case, I'm going to scurry over to him. Like, what, what are the books you got? What are you listening to? Like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm interested, but I know that, you know, when I've been depressed, I would walk in that room and just not, n neither of those things would interest me. So it has been clinical in my case. And so my treatment for it has been a variety of things. There has been medicine involved, but that's not all. Um, I think that exercise for me is really, really important. I think um, eating relatively well, sleeping well, um, working and managing my emotions. So for me, I kind of treat it as like, it's just something that, that responds well when I'm living the right, you know, qu quote unquote, the right way, right? Um, so for me, I, I often say, I just sort of, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at it, right? Like I'm, I'm just trying you know, everything that I know. And I'm at the point where it's very, very well managed now, you know? I, so I, I never know sort of like a question of like, are you an alcoholic always? I'm sort of like depression. I'm like, well, I, do I have it? Did I have it? What, what's the, you know, I don't quite know how to refer to it, but it is far, uh, far better managed than it used to be. I appreciate sure. that response. I think that would help a lot of people. So let me go back to something else you said, and I appreciate your time a lot. I really am enjoying this and getting so much out of this. That, that point that you made about cleaning coffee cups why was that a part of the process what did that do for you yeah so aa had a had a core idea and had a core insight that i think is really important i mean aa did a lot of things really well but they had a core insight and the core insight was hey one of the best ways to feel better is to help other people one of the best ways to feel better is to you know, quote unquote, get out of yourself and do things that benefit other people. Part of your problem is that you sit around and think about yourself all the time, right? You think about other people. So, so cleaning coffee cups was just an early way for somebody in recovery who, you know, can't, um, can't really help others in other ways. It's just something you can do. Now, as AA goes on, what, what they, what they realized was that the best the, the most powerful thing was one alcoholic talking to another. And what they realized was that let's say I'm 10 years sober and you're 10 days sober and I am, I am quote unquote helping you. Right. What, what they realized was that that the, the nature of that relationship was entirely reciprocal, meaning I helped you, but my helping you helped me just as much. Right. And so that's kind of what I meant. It's this idea of, you know, service to others and having a purpose that's beyond just how do I feel is is really important. So that that's what it was. I got that. I appreciate that. Something else really quickly is part of the the TED talk and the risk analogy was you talked about the importance. I don't remember exactly what category it came under, but are you more apt to change behavior successfully if you rely on others or a multitude of others to help you do so? And do people generally do that or do they try and fight this good fight themselves? The, the, my experience and the science is unequivocal on you are more likely to change with the support of other people. I often, the analogy I often make is, you know, if you've got heroin addiction or you've got an alcohol problem, you go to a, you go to a program and you meet other people and they support you. Most people try and quit smoking all by themselves. They just decide I'm going to quit now and I'm going to do it all by myself. We know that quitting smoking, the, the, the rates of doing it are, 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 are horrible. So um, yeah, I, the help of other people and the support of other people, I think is always, always helpful if you can find it and get it. One quick sidebar. Did you ever smoke cigarettes? Uh, not, not pot, but cigarettes? <laughs> um, amazingly, I did not until, 
So I, I managed to become a heroin addict and taking every other drug on the planet except cigarettes. And then about six months before I started drinking again, I started smoking cigarettes and I did it for about six months and then never did it again. It was kind of bizarre. I think it was, it was, it was pointing to the fact that like, <laughs> I'm heading in the wrong direction here. I bring it up because I did. I was I was one of those people, and I was kind of a type A guy and kind of intense about things. And when I was in college, Eric, I just kind of throw this out there because I tell friends this, and they just they can't believe it for whatever reason. I'm not here to judge. Yes, I am kind of. But I went from never smoking. Well, actually, back in the day, I went to UC Santa Barbara. Back in the day, clove cigarettes. I don't know if you remember those things were kind of a oh, yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. And we did that, and they were kind of nasty. But somehow, some way, and I don't know how I did this, I went from never smoking a cigarette to smoking a pack of Marlboro Reds a day, overnight. It was the weirdest thing. And I remember a roommate saying to me, and it really struck me, and I tried to quit, and I couldn't do it, and I really wanted to quit, but the nicotine thing was very, very strong, of course. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, as an addiction person, I think you can relate to this, I would get to maybe 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then I would just give in, and I'd be like, God, I could, if I could just make it one day, and I couldn't make it to one day. Mm -hmm. And I remember a roommate saying to me, and this is when I was really my formulative years where I was so gung-ho and so motivated and so ambitious to take on the world, this roommate says to me, dude, if you can't do this, you're never going to be able to do anything, which I thought was pretty profound from one 19-year-old to say to another 19-year-old. And then somehow, some way, and I've never really told the story on the air, but what I did was, I think right around four o'clock, I smoked some dope or I did something and I was able to sleep through the rest of the night that I could normally not get through. And when I woke up, I realized I'd made it a day. And I'm like, all right, let's keep the streak alive. I'm going to try and make it a second day. But the reason I tell this story, not because I'm proud of it, but this whole cigarette thing, I just sidebar again. It was so weird that even after I quit for at least three years, I would have dreams about cigarettes and they'd always be the exact same dream where I'd wake up like, oh my God, I can't believe I gave in. I can't believe I quit. Oh, it's only a dream. It's fine. But it, it had that strong of a hold. For years, I yeah. literally had dreams about that. Is that unusual to you or no? No, I don't think it's unusual. I mean, I certainly had you know, uh, dreams about alcohol and drugs after I use them and similar experience in the dream. It was like, Oh, I cannot believe right. I did this again. I'd wake up and I'd be like, Oh, thank God. I'm so relieved, you know, that I didn't. Good. Yeah. That that's, I just wanted to sidebar and see if that was a similar, if you had a similar type of thought and I see that you did. So Eric, let me ask you this. You, you work with a lot of people. You have a number of programs, a uh, number of tiers, you work one-on-one. -on -one. I think this is a fascinating conversation and we're talking about changing behavior and it's not something that we can cover comprehensively in 45 minutes, but I think we got a really good start and a really good taste. If people want to learn more, hey, wait, before I get to that pitch, one last thing. You mentioned like if I walk into a room and I see books, I'm excited about that if everything's right. I'm really curious. I get this all the time. Like, who's your favorite guest? It's an impossible thing to answer and you've done way more episodes on your podcast than I have of mine, but I could tell, obviously, you read quite a bit. If you had to like think of a book or two or an author or two that really, really was interesting to you, that really struck a nerve with you or a chord with you, who would that be? What's what's a really interesting book that you've read in the last five or ten years that you would reread or recommend? Um, there's a Stanford um, a researcher by the name of B.J. Fogg who wrote a book called Tiny Habits. And there's a lot of wisdom in there about just straightforward behavior change stuff that that is really useful. That's the first one that comes to mind. I mean, there are so many of them, depending on what you're really interested in. But since we've been talking a lot about behavior change, that's one that really stood out to me and was early on for me was, um, he didn't have a book at the time, actually, I was I was looking at his his research, but then he subsequently published a book. But it was pretty influential uh, in my thinking about things. Okay, I appreciate that. So if folks want to know more about your teachings, your programs, the things that you offer, even the possibility of working with you one on one, where would they go to get that information and seek out those opportunities? Yeah, it's oneyoufeed.net, O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. You can find the podcast there. You can find the one-on-one -on -one coaching. You can find the various programs we have. It's, it's all available right there. Okay, I really, really appreciate that, and I really, really appreciate the time. I did not mean to take as much time as I did with you, Eric, but I find it really interesting. And as you know, as a podcaster yourself, it is our job to listen and react and follow. And I think that everything you said was just so compelling and so interesting. So that's exactly what I did. Thank you so much. An absolute pleasure to meet you. And I think the information is just tremendous. 
Thank you so much, Jim. This is a real, real pleasure to be interviewed by a true pro. <laughs> I thought that was a tremendous conversation with Eric Zimmer. I hope you get as much out of that as I did. Listen, I make no bones about this. I am on a personal quest, but I try not to personalize this podcast too much. In other words, we're not here for my benefit. Hopefully, it provides benefit to everybody listening. However, when Eric mentioned that he heard me do a Peloton commercial on my podcast, I had to bring up one of my personal ongoing battles within. The battle with the pantry. Now, that is a behavior that I would love to change. In fact, it's a behavior that I can and do change for a period of time only to fall back into familiar, infuriating patterns. You know, the pattern of murdering cookies and sugar when I really don't want to and I know it's going to make me feel like crap, physically and mentally both. I mean, that struggle is bleeping real now. Sometimes I kick the pantry's ass, but sometimes it kicks my ass. More often, in fact, than I care to admit. But I thought that Eric did a brilliant job of breaking down why that is, why that happens, and what to do about it. Now, you brought that out, and essentially, this is what Eric is teaching. He's here to help those who are struggling to change their behavior. Struggling, in large part, because they keep telling themselves, I'm just not that disciplined, or I don't have great willpower, or I never finish what I start, so I know I can't change my behavior. Not true, unless that's exactly what you believe. And if that is what you believe, it's because you're feeding the wrong wolf. That's why I love that he uses that great old parable as the premise of his podcast, the one you feed. It's so true. For all of us, ask yourself, if we all have two wolves inside of us, which one are you feeding? The one that represents kindness, bravery, and love, or the one that represents greed, hatred, and fear? And if you're scoffing at that analogy or parable and you're dismissing it as hokey or lame, believe me, then you are feeding the wrong wolf. There is a reason it's a, quote, great old parable because it's timeless and it's true. You do have two wolves within. We all do. So make sure you're feeding the right one. Biggest takeaway here is this. Just because you haven't been able to consistently change your behaviors and improve your life does not mean that you're not capable of doing so. It just means you haven't yet. It just means you need a better understanding of yourself, your thoughts, your actions, your tactics, and your strategies. Instead of trying to fix everything that you think is wrong in your life all at the same time, for instance, just pick one thing. Lock it down, begin to lay down your foundation, and then build it out from there. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more about Eric's teachings, I would encourage you to go to his site for more information about his programs and his mentoring. My thanks to Eric for making the time to share his amazing journey and techniques for behavioral change and reinvention. And of course, thanks so much to all of you for listening. And as always, please subscribe, leave a review, and feel free to share the conversation with somebody who you think might benefit from it. And... Feel free to go back and check out any or all of the other 30-plus episodes that we have right here. Ask me. They're all inspirational and motivational as hell. Have an amazing week, and I will see you all next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.